If you're not reaching your financial potential, you're going it alone as a solopreneur, or you're lacking fulfillment and meaning in your life, then this podcast is for you. In each and every episode, Rock helps you create breakthroughs and results so you can live life on your terms. So get ready to unleash more money, time, and magic in your life. Here's your host, Rock Thomas. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. My name is Rock Thomas. I'm the host of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life podcast. And you might be wondering, why do I do this every single week? Why do I interview people and talk about the importance of money? Well, I'm here to help you create financial freedom and fulfillment, the whole life millionaire. If you're working harder than ever before and not seeing any progress, you're not alone. If you don't have a supportive environment or network to raise your personal standards of success, you're not alone. But I would like to invite you to jump on a call with somebody on my team so you can change all of that. Just head over to rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call and learn how you can take your life and business to the next level by being in the right environment, surrounded by the right people and with the right strategies. So go ahead, rockthomas.com forward slash VIP call, and let's start taking your life to the next level today. Welcome to another episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. And our guest today is going to give you a few distinctions on how you can borrow other people's money. Welcome to the call, Chris. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Excited. It's great to, to be here with you. So, <clears throat> As we build millionaires in this ecosystem of mine, one of the pieces that is really crucial is that people pay attention to building good credit, and you're the master of that. So let's dive right into it. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that people are doing wrong and some of the things that people need to do in order to get that right. You know, as a chief credit officer of a publicly traded bank, I can tell you I see a lot of different credit profiles, uh, whether you're just starting out or very well you know, established, a uh, successful entrepreneur, if you will. Uh, I can tell you that there's a lot of common myths like there are with health and fitness that are out there that we think of when it comes to credit that aren't necessarily true. Uh, paying down and completely paying off your debt is, is a wonderful thing, but having no usage of your credit is actually bad for your credit. It actually, uh, underutilizing your, your credit brings your score down. Uh, there's a number of other elements when it comes to applying for loans that I think people really get stuck on. They think of credit scores in, in the context of a box uh, that typically applies large, for larger, bigger box banks or people who are selling in the secondary market for agency. But smaller community regional banks have a tendency to not be so stuck on the individual number. So rather than being worried about fitting yourselves into this box of seven this to eight that, people need to focus on just having strong credit habits and, and being smart and you know strategic with their credit. So let's pretend that nobody knows anything about credit. Let's give them some of the basics. So a good credit score, what's the range? The entire range of credit score is what? You know, it's funny. You, you see a lot of different numbers online. It's a lot of a bit of a, bit of a myth. I would say 350 to 850 is kind of the, the range. In reality, in practice, you never really see something below, call it a four, 450, and around 800 is, you know, 850-ish, 820. Those are kind of your real ranges versus that target. You typically don't fall below the 400s. Uh, and if you're just starting out and you're just getting a first credit card, the biggest mistake people have is, hey, I've got a credit card and I have a really good credit score or I've got a really terrible credit score. When you're just starting out, those numbers can swing very, very quickly. There's a lot more volatility in it because it's going by length of history and the number of trade lines. And if you've only got one and it's brand new, your score will be very dependent on that individual trade line. <laughs> 
So Chris, let's talk about the factors so that people can really wrap their head around this. Um, what influences credit rating? What are people looking for? And then let's talk a little bit about the timeline and how that goes into it. I feel like it's a bit like um, the, you know, I was watching the tennis and the tennis is, you know, they have this power rating depending on how many games they've played in the last year versus the person who's performing better in the last month. And so there's a bit of that involved in there, but give people a little bit of the basics. So you'll, you can go online and find uh, a nice little pie chart of how this breaks down from a percentage basis. But I like to be generally uh, very broad on this topic because I'll tell you, it's, it's more of an art than science in a lot of ways. Managing your credit is kind of a lifelong thing. So when you open up a trade line, you start a history of payment with that particular provider, let's say a credit card provider. That length of time and your payment history at that provider is really what your score depends on and also the type of credit. So what does this look like for you? how long you have a credit card open, how long you've paid as agreed, if you've ever had any 30-day lates or 60-day lates, these all impact your score. The types of credit is actually surprising for most people. When, you, when you're growing up and you're starting out, you typically have revolving lines of credit, credit cards. As you get a little older, you might have some larger, longer installment loans, like car loans, things that typically are paid off over a longer period of time. Having a healthy mix of different types of credit actually helps change your score a little bit. I've always found that having the installment stuff, cars and homes, mortgages, tend to anchor your credit score a little bit better and the things you do are less impactful as it relates to revolving lines of credit and, and credit cards. Uh, one of the things I think I get questioned a lot is, is Chris, you know, everybody says credit is bad. Uh, there's a stigma to it. And I would tell you that no, utilizing your credit and having a, a good amount of credit available relative to usage is actually good for your score but, you know, the stigma that we have is, yes, credit can bear you if not used properly. Uh, one of the tricks I give a lot of people as it relates to managing their credit successfully over time is have what I old school terminology here is have a charge card. I use American Express as an example. I run all my expenses in the month through my American Express and I pay it off at the end of every single month. I don't use traditional revolving credit cards where I carry a balance because that balance carries with it a high interest rate. And that interest rate over time can be significant dollars. Now, there's a need to have that for emergency purposes, you know, but so be it. And that's fine. I still have traditional credit cards. But that helps me maintain credit on a monthly basis, shows that I'm using it, and then I pay it down every single month. It's actually very healthy for your credit score to continue to utilize credit in that way. Mm, makes sense. Now, um, what happens if you have something like, I just was traveling for five weeks, I came back, and I noticed that I got a speeding ticket taken with a picture, right? Um, and very nicely mailed to me, 245 bucks. And I'm late now, I think, on the payment. Will that affect my credit rating? Typically, no. Uh, in, in most cases, I would say that your speeding ticket, stuff like that, will not affect your credit score. It used to be that judgments and, and bankruptcies and foreclosures and things like that that showed up on your credit score well after you had improved your credit had a, a tendency to lag them down. Credit, I like to tell people, is really if you're giving somebody your social security number and they are giving you the ability to use money in advance and you use it, that typically is a good indication that it's going to wind up on your credit report. Uh, a great example of one that typically does not wind up on your credit credit report, trade lines, stuff like Verizon Wireless, your cell phone carriers, they check your, cre your credit to make sure that you are a responsible adult and that you have a tendency to repay your debt obligations, but they're not reporting into the credit bureaus the same way a credit card from MasterCard or Visa, or your local bank would, for example. So 
just because they ask for your social security number or they, they use that information, unless they are actually giving you a credit, a line in advance to use, that's not the way it works. And most toll roads, for example, is, is a great, is another good example. They charge you in advance. They're not giving you credit. They're giving you, you're paying in advance for the usage of their stuff. And they're taking that out of your accounts accordingly. Tickets typically do not show up that way. So are you saying that there's a distinction between literally credit where they're giving you access to funds prior to versus a delinquent payment like it could be with uh, your cable company or utility company, et cetera? Exactly. There's a very there's a very big difference there. They don't report into the bureaus. So by way of history, the three bureaus, Experian, Equifax and TransUnion are private companies. Despite popular belief, this is not a, a big government thing. These private companies have their own algorithms. The algorithms really take a look at the factors we've talked about, your length of credit, your credit available to you, and you know types of credit, and so on and so forth. And there's different weightings based on every single one. And you might wonder, well, why, wait a minute. You know, experience says one score, Equifax says another, and TransUnion says yet another. Well, each one of them has a little bit of different nuance to their algorithm and how that conclusion comes up with it. Uh, Credit, if someone is pulling it, checking your credit and, and looking at it, providing you an advance, uh, you know, usage of some dollar amount, that'll report in as a trade line every single month. But your your cable stuff, your Wi-Fi, you know, your tickets, your, your collections that are not related to somebody extending you credit, they do not show up on your credit report. They typically do not hurt you. Now, someone could easily go to court and get a collection judgment for you. But again, these things do not typically show up on your credit report. And they're unlikely to unless they were related to originally a credit card in the beginning. Very cool. So I've heard that if you have a credit card, you shouldn't max it out and pay it off and max it out and pay it off. You should use something closer to like 70% of it. Um, yeah. Is it been true to that? A little bit. So again, if you need to max it out or you need to use it for some purpose and that's important for you, go ahead and do that and pay it down over time. But one of the things that goes into that algorithm that we talked so much about so far is that your amount of credit utilized versus available to you. And if you're utilizing all of it that's available to you, that actually brings your score down. So an easy example, if you have a $100,000 available limit and you've used 100% of it, that shows a high balance to available credit ratio. And you'll see that. I tell a lot of individuals who go, well, you know, Chris, I don't really understand where these things are coming from. How do I know where I sit today? You know, how do I get a litmus test? Almost every bank and credit card company for that matter has now in their mobile app, a little feature where you can click on it and they'll give you an approximation of your current credit score. And they'll actually give you little indicators saying, hey, available credit uh, usage is too high or, you know, number of checks on your credit report in the last several months uh, or, you know, <clears throat> are too, too many or too frequent and things like that, that kind of give you a barometer of what some of the biggest issues are that could be dragging your score down. Wow, that's really fascinating. And so the people that come uh, to improve their credit with you, are there one or two or three things that you instantly can say, okay, now, boom, here are the big ones that typically show up? You know, we, we get a varying degree of different people from different educational and financial backgrounds. So I can tell you, we take a look at it from a very personalized perspective. I mean, we don't charge for services. We're not a credit repairing agency. I just try to help people in a pro bono sense. So the first question I typically ask people is, you know, why are they there? Is it because they're feeling overwhelmed with credit? Is it because their credit score is not where they want it to be? There's two very different paths for those. If, if your credit score is not where you want it to be, it's just about understanding where it is setting that baseline and figuring out how to improve from there. And I typically go into the apps and do that. It doesn't hurt to, to do that. You also get one free credit report a year. We'll pull it and we'll look at your trade lines and see how you've used it. If on the other hand, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed with your debt, 
we'd like to have the conversation as it relates to cash flow. You know, your, your usage of credit really should be strategic and planned. And if you're spending more money than you're making, as simple as that sounds, that will eventually bury you. And one of the biggest thing, causes of anxiety in, in, in most people's lives these days is money and their finances. So we try to deal with the human element around spending habits and behavior because it's very easy now. It's easier now than ever before to buy things online and just click, you know, if you have like Apple Pay, for example, and buy something in, in a split second using your face. And that can lead to some pretty overwhelming debt regarding your spending habits. Yeah, very cool. So why is it that the credit, um, they, they frown on the fact that you want to check your credit more than once a year. What it was, what's up with that? Yeah, so multiple entries into your credit essentially means that you're out there looking for credit. And the original idea with the algorithm was somebody who's continually looking for credit is probably somebody who's got a little bit a higher appreciation for appetite for risk as it relates to credit or they're getting declined places and looking for more. Understand the algorithm for FICO scoring is really just indicative of your risk to somebody extending your credit. If the number is higher, you have lower risk. If your number is lower, you have higher risk. And people want to make loans to people who are going to pay them back because they're in the money of getting, they're in the business of getting paid back when they extend the money and they're getting paid back with a high interest rate. So multiple inquiries into your credit report is never a good thing. However, there is a bit of an asterisk here. In the last, uh, call it 15, 20 years, they've changed this uh, to where if you're going into, like, for example, get a refinance on your home. You went to your lender and they gave you a rate or a term that wasn't favorable to you. You go to another lender and so on and so right. forth. After the first pull, it should work this way. It doesn't always, it usually takes a little while to catch up. The, the score, the algorithm from each one of these three, you know, credit reporting companies should say, okay, you know, um, Kevin and Jennifer are out looking for refinance in their primary. They're shopping to see if they can get a good rate or the best opportunity for them. And it should aggregate that inquiry into one singular inquiry, which brings your down your score down momentarily and briefly. Uh, and it usually goes back up in a month or two if you stop pulling different inquiries. It should recognize that as you shopping for that opportunity, and, and it should take one singular hit to your credit score. I think that makes sense because the, the fact of the matter is, is when I do shop for a mortgage, is I'm going to go to two or three different places, and I'm going to find out what the deal is. I'm a Canadian living in America, and... It's been a challenge getting access to, to, to cash here and they want to charge a premium because I don't have a credit rating that's up to par or what have you. Have you got any experience with foreigners? Yeah, so uh, at the bank, one of the things that we do is we see a lot of, you know, either foreign nationals or as we refer to them in, for example, Palm Springs, the snowbirds who will come down here uh, during, during, the, the, during the summer and back up there in the winter and vice versa, depending on what their preference is. So... You know, if you're international, the credit reporting companies, these are not international companies. There's different credit reporting mechanisms, usually subsidiaries or affiliates of the same U.S.-based companies in different countries, but they don't necessarily report over. Uh, the, the banking system is a bit challenging, uh, which really operates what the credit system is, in that there's not an international way of reporting these things. And the trade lines, your credit lines in other countries don't necessarily equate over to the United States, and that's a very common problem. What I tell people is if you're moving to a new country, uh, you are really reestablishing credit. You're really starting from zero. The good news is, is if you take strategic steps in the first year, you can really build that score up quickly. Uh, but the challenge you wind up dealing with is you get very low limits from banks. So you'll go to like your local regional community bank. You'll, you'll, build a, uh, you'll start a credit relationship with them. You'll probably open a depository uh, account. And they'll probably give you a credit card of $750 or 500 bucks. 
but it's a trade line that helps boost your score is kind of the best way to start. But definitely internationally, every time you change, you're essentially, you know, reestablishing yourself. But don't you think based on the snowbirds uh, coming down or foreigners that have lots of money, like I'm, I'm not a new kid on the block, you know, I've yeah. got evidence of multiple companies in Canada um, purchasing homes down here and um, the, the lost opportunity for them to uh, make money has got to be huge. A lot of snowbirds are forced to buy properties cash because um, mm -hmm. if they're going to loan them money because there's no credit rating, they want to charge them one or two points more than the American or you know, the nationals being charged. Yeah, there are a couple cheat codes here, though, and, and I'll throw some out at you. So a lot of people tend to go to the big box banks they know, particularly after the Great Recession, when, you know, a lot of these banks had calls on capital. And there were some challenges and some of the names you, you thought were larger had had financial difficulties and went out of business. You know, so I get the stigma as it relates to it. As a guy who helped start a, a regional bank, you know, I can tell you that the capital requirements are the same regardless of your size. It just has a difference on how much capital you have to keep based on your particular book. And the FDIC insurance, which covers your accounts, is effectively the same. So your your real risk from bank to bank is essentially the same. People don't like that because of what they've experienced in their lifetimes, and I can appreciate it. But what I will tell you is community and regional banks have a better understanding of the environment that they're lending in. And they have a little bit more flexibility as it relates to their credit policy or what they use to make their credit decisioning. So if, for example, you're a bank and you have a location, we do have a location in Palm Desert, and you have a lot of people that are coming in to that environment who with a similar credit profile, who are you know well-established in foreign countries, they have all these things, they can usually find a way around that or structure it in a way that they can come up with some financing. Because when you think about it from a risk perspective, there's two things that lower the risk here. Number one, this is a long-term installment loan. This is not a credit card, typically. This is buying a property. Number two, a bank can properly mitigate the risk because in a worst case event scenario of default, what do we do? We take the property back. California is a great example because it's a single action state. You just literally file one document, you take the property back. The downside to that is we can't have a deficiency judgment out after the individual if the property is insufficient to cover. So how do we do that? You just lower the loan to value. You bring in a little bit more money. We loan you a little bit less dollars. Now, the rate should not be punitive for that. There should maybe, in this particular market, rates, it seems funny to talk about because rates are historic lows and they're perceived to be that way for at least the next year or two with a maximum 75 basis point increase, I think, in the next couple of years. But if you look at the rate environment, 25 basis points would be more than enough to equal that risk. But banks that are community and regional banks typically don't like to singe their customers by giving them an uncompetitive rate and leaving a bad taste in their mouth and force them to go with them. So community banks, regional banks, that's the cheat code to get there. It's just building that relationship. I've always felt the relationship is the truest form of currency. You go into your bank, you have a conversation with somebody, you open up an account, tell them what you're doing, starts there, you'll get that money eventually. All right, let's pivot a little bit. What's an average day for you look like? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Oh, wow. Uh, I wake up pretty early. It, it was, uh, I have uh, my wife and I have a two and a half year old son. And he is the highlight of my world. Mm -hmm. So I really try to be with him when he wakes up at seven. So that means I get up at five. And I typically go through a lot of kind of the things that I've got delayed. Uh, I've got email and social media and stuff that I get to. So I kind of organize and schedule and get ahead of my day, typically with the news on in the background. And then I try to work out if I can for about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, but that has admittedly taken a backseat as of late, just with too many projects going on. Uh, what are you most excited about, about right now? What projects? Uh, 
you know, at this juncture in my life, I, I've been really excited about the, kind of the creative stuff. I, you know, it doesn't make us any money with the social media stuff that we're doing, uh, you know, and it doesn't really, but I feel like it's the most visible and the most helpful to people. And I've been able to connect with individuals uh, in a way that I hadn't really been able to connect before. I think there's a little bit of a stigma coming to see somebody who's in my position at a bank or somebody who's an attorney like myself. And on social media, it's like a great equalizer. Right. So I'll get I'll get random people asking me questions about their financial position in my in my direct messages. And while some of them are clearly scams and some of them are, you know, kind of weird, I have been able to help some people that way in, in, a, in a broader sense than I wouldn't have been able to help before. Hmm. So small stuff like that means a lot. Since we started talking uh, before going live, um, you talk a lot about helping people out. It seems to be a real priority for you. Um, is that is that because you feel you've had some success and now you want to give back or what, what's behind that? I don't know that it's because I felt that I've had some success. I still, I still don't know. I feel like success is, is kind of a, it's a journey. It's not a destination. Yeah. Um, I've, I've done okay. I think it's because I've had a lot of failures, frankly. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. My credit was terrible when I was younger, just because I think I was trying to do things financially that were beyond my reach. And the older I got, the more, I began to question the image of the lifestyle I was leading versus the quality of the lifestyle that I was leading. Mm. And I took my focus off of what other people thought and spent more time focusing on what I really wanted for myself and my future. And, and now my son and my wife and, and those things became more of a priority, but in doing so, I, I kind of, I guess, had some perspective. I, I, I appreciated life in a lot of ways. And I hope that in today's society where your parents are typically both working, where school doesn't teach you about financial literacy. If we can have this conversation more in an open, honest forum and say, hey, look, just because you have money doesn't mean you know everything about you know money and finance. Just because you came from a poor family doesn't mean you can't become successful. Destigmatizing this and, re and really having the conversation in an open forum has, frankly, it's been a very fulfilling and enriching thing. I've got no other excuse. <laughs> Well, now you're talking my language, which is really about helping people learn what they didn't learn in school and teaching them some of the fundamentals so that they can work their way through from not just employee, but maybe you want to have a side hustle. You want to have something else you can add, some extra income, but maybe you want to mm -hmm. become a business person and run a yeah. business successfully. And then maybe eventually you want to become an investor where your money's working hard for you. And you don't have to work and you can spend time at home if you want with your two and a half year old son and come to work at 10 o'clock if that's what you choose. This quality of life today with technology is supposed to make our lives better, not more hectic. And I think temporarily people are a little bit caught up and you know, still we're checking our phones. Like you said, the moment you wake up, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe, you didn't check your email at home. You went into the office to do it. Yep. And you had this, this peace and quiet in the morning and at least a different kind of energy. But now we wake up and something like 68% of the people, the first thing they do is look at their phone and they allow the outside world to dictate a response now that you have to manage. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, connectivity is a dual-edged sword, right? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> wonderful to have access to it, but at the same time now, because we're so easy to get online and respond to things, I found, and it's funny, the... When text messaging started, it was a word or two. And now people have these long narratives and these conversations that really should be had in person. 
I wonder where it all goes. I mean, as we employ a lot of people here at the bank. I, you know, my other companies employ uh, a number of people as well. And the tendency for the younger generation to want to be virtual now, I get it. I can appreciate it. I love working remote too. But there's something to be said for that tangible, tactile, in-person connection, even if it's just your voice on the phone, that means something more to a relationship. And I've said it before, and I say it, I'll say it again. Relationships being the truest form of currency, who you know really does matter in your personal growth and your in your business success and and you know how you how you continue to grow, you require that you need that wisdom from people around you. And you don't you're not always lucky to get it from your, your social circle, your friends and family. You can get that at work, you can get that in business, but you have to connect. Ladies and gentlemen, not just a banker, not just uh -huh. a lawyer, but now a motivational speaker and a coach. Chris, it's uh, been a delight having you on the show. We could talk for hours. I'm going to definitely have to have you back as a follow-up. How can people get hold of you? I'm easy to reach. I'm on every social media platform you can think of. TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. It's at Chris Nahibi, my last name, N-A-G-H-I-B-I. Send me a message. Oh, what a pleasure. What a wealth of information. What a great heart that you have. Uh, you got a, a lucky wife and, um, and, a, and a son who hopefully you continue to pour wisdom into so he doesn't have to unlearn a lot of things like the rest of the population. Chris, thanks so much for being on Rock Your Money and Rock Your Life. Sincerely appreciate it. Take care. So that's it for today's episode of Rock Your Money, Rock Your Life. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Then head on over to rockyourmoneyrockyourlife.com and pick up a copy of Rock's free gift so you too can reach your financial potential, enjoy extraordinary success, and live the life you've imagined. Join us on the next episode.